Lives of the Unconscious. Tales of Therapy. Alex, Part One, or Searching for Words. In our Tales of Therapy series, we will share case histories taken from psychoanalytic and psychodynamic practice. We want to offer a vivid glimpse. How do psychoanalysts work? How does therapy proceed? How does it feel? What kinds of stories and people do we encounter? We will get to know therapies in different settings. Short-term therapy, and so-called classical psychoanalysis, but also our work in schools, clinics, and other fields. We want to offer a glimpse that is as close to practice as possible. At the same time, data protection and privacy are our top priority. All case histories and details named have been published only with the personal consent of those involved and have been modified to render them completely anonymous, so that inference to any real person is not possible, or examples have been invented. Possible overlaps with any real persons are therefore coincidental. Please see the references to this case study, as well as ways to help in mental health crisis situations. We have added them to the show notes. If you would like to support our project, we would be happy to receive a donation via Patreon or PayPal. We will use the money to produce more episodes and case histories. The podcast is a labor of love, a product of our own handiwork. We do not serve any institutional or commercial interests. The link can also be found in the show notes on our homepage. But now to our case history. It takes us into the practice of a middle-aged psychoanalyst in a larger-sized city in Germany who tells about his work with Alex, a 36-year-old man at the start of therapy. The story is told from the perspective of Alex's therapist. The Initial Consultation When Alex entered my practice for the first time in spring 2017, he had already had a long and arduous journey through the healthcare system. There appeared, for an initial consultation, a pale, lanky man with reddened, unhealthy-looking skin, and yet with a friendly, approachable, somewhat insecure manner. He seemed quite troubled and immediately handed me a medical report from a clinic. I took the letter, asked him to describe in his own words what had brought him to me. Alex reported that ever since his youth, he has frequently suffered physical ailments that had no clear origin, dizziness, severe fatigue, iron deficiency, tinnitus, 
or constant headaches. A few months earlier, he had been hospitalized because of a supposed heart attack or stroke. His heart, however, turned out to be healthy, nor could any other physical ailments be found. And so an anxiety disorder was presumed, and a recommendation was made to seek psychotherapeutic treatment. Alex reported that over the last few months, he had frequently found himself falling into inexplicable, in his words, states, in which everything collapses. For the time being, however, it remained unclear and hazy as to what he meant by states. Out of nowhere, he suddenly gets dizzy, can't breathe, sees stars, feels like he is going to faint. He described to me very precisely the physical processes that accompanied these states. I had the impression that he didn't want to leave out a single detail that could give me an important clue to some serious illness. Severe sweating, shortness of breath, a pounding and skipping here, Alex points to his chest, and everything gets mixed up in my head. He then has to sit down, has the feeling that he is about to faint. It is as if something were exploding in his head, as if somewhere in the brain, veins were swelling, threatening to burst. He had already seen several doctors for these symptoms, but nothing was ever found. Lately, it had gotten worse. Until one night, he called the ambulance and he was taken to the hospital. There, he had a thorough checkup, yet still without finding anything. Finally, the doctor advised him to see a therapist. It may be psychosomatic. He should learn to reduce stress. I ask Alex, and what do you think? Alex says, I don't know. I also think, actually, I have nothing. Actually, I'm fine. But then it comes back again anyway. He seems to lack the words to describe what it is. There is a pause, and he says, So I don't know whether it's bad or not. I say, It sounds like if a physical cause cannot be found, then it can't be bad. Then it's actually nothing. Alex reports that there are great reservations in his family about everything having to do with what's inside the head. His mother always says, that's where you go when you have a screw loose. If you want to talk, it's better to talk to your family. The psychologists only want money, and so on. I say, then it's maybe not so easy for you to come here to a psychologist. He himself doesn't think like his family, but it still feels weird now talking to a therapist. He believes the doctors that there is nothing physical. But if it is psychological, then shouldn't he just pull himself together? Others manage to. He wonders if he's now one of those people who just can't get their lives back on track. But, Alex says, these states just come as they will, over and over again. At first, only in certain situations, for example, when shopping or in public, when there were lots of people around. But now it can hit even when he is completely alone. He has a good job in the IT industry, 
but even here it is increasingly difficult for him to still perform well. He is afraid when dealing with customers that he will start to sweat or faint. I say, I have the impression that you are trying very hard to hold yourself together so that others don't see how you're really doing, but that it is very exhausting, and from inside it looks completely different. You're not doing well at all. It's killing me, Alex says, now with tears in his eyes. He has been in a relationship with a woman for three years. It is the first long-term relationship he has had in his life. Alex is 36, and they have been living together for a year. Alex is afraid that his problems will strain the relationship, that he will become unbearable for his girlfriend. When he falls into these states, he gets very attached, all clingy, must talk to her a lot. Sometimes she can calm him down a bit. But as Alex says, no real man does that. His girlfriend thinks it's good that Alex is seeking therapy. She says, it's good that you can talk to someone. I ask him, do you have any ideas about that yourself? What psychosomatic means? What could be the cause? Alex says that he has a lot of stress at work, that perhaps this is the cause, that he works too much. But at the same time, he enjoys his job, and he has never had any problems before. Everything is also okay in his family. Also, everything was normal in his childhood. I ask a little about his family. His parents live in a house a few streets away. His father is a teacher in a vocational school. His mother works in a technical profession. I ask Alex what his relationship to his parents is like. Good. I go there every Sunday for dinner. The whole family is often there, aunts, uncles, cousins, my two brothers. Alex is in the middle, with a few years gap between each brother. So everything is good there. Everyone has a good job, makes good money. Some own their house or are saving for one. I don't quite know what to say or ask about this description of his family. I feel something in me or in the situation pressuring me to agree with him that everything is fine. At the time when he first enrolled, I noticed that Alex had an unusual last name. I couldn't quite place it. To my ear, it sounded perhaps Russian or Eastern European. I feel the need to ask him about where the family comes from. However, at the same time, a nasty feeling arises in me. It is somehow a rude question. Is that not discriminatory? Are others whose surnames are common in my country asked the same question? Wouldn't my question be taken as saying, Yes, yes, you say everything is fine with your family, but your last name sounds Russian. Are you sure everything is really fine? As if Russian names were already something somehow suspicious? As if my interest in its origin was linked to serious prejudices? In other situations, I usually find a good and respectful formulation, but here I can't think of anything. As if there were only a choice between being rude or offending or not addressing it at all. Alex brings up his symptoms again. 
actually, everything is fine. He doesn't know where it comes from. I say, perhaps that is our task, to understand that a bit better. Alex, but what do you mean, where it comes from? He addresses me directly for the first time. The hour is already almost over, and the closer we come to the end, the more anxious Alex seems to become, as if he had been trying very hard to keep himself together, but now is being swayed by completely different feelings. He says, For me, this is really bad. I don't know what to do anymore. If this goes on, I don't even know. He doesn't want to do anything to harm himself, but he is completely desperate. Everything in his life is falling apart. And again he says, What is it, doctor? I say, I don't know, but I do have hope that we can find out. What strikes me is that you describe your complaints very much in terms of physical states, sweating, shortness of breath, but with this there is also a feeling. I have the impression that you are afraid. Afraid? Okay. And of what? asks Alex, almost shouting. I once again have the feeling of being sent in search of a concrete cause to be cured by some treatment. I don't think either of us knows that yet. Perhaps it is first important to understand exactly what happens in these states. Something in my answer seems to have had a calming effect on him. He nods. I tell him that I have the impression his states are panic attacks with so-called psycho-vegetative symptoms. I almost fall back into a kind of pedagogical position as I describe the processes in the nervous system. And I also give him a few tips on what he should do in panic situations. Alex listens, nods. But at the same time, I have the feeling I am losing contact with him while giving him these explanations. And again, he is consumed by great unrest. The hour ends, and as we are parting in the corridor, Alex asks whether I think it could be something bad. He asks, Doctor, I don't have to go to a psychiatric hospital, do I? I say, We will talk about that next time. This, at the same moment, also strikes me as cruel, like a threat as if I would admit him to the psychiatric ward at our next meeting. Whereas, I actually wanted to say that the hour is over, that next time we will have the opportunity to talk further about the palpable fear behind this sentence. The initial consultation leaves my head muddled, spinning. I also feel somewhat uncomfortable, as if I had done something wrong. At the same time, I have the feeling that I am already a very important person for Alex, someone in whom he places a lot of hope. On the one hand, in the foreground are his states. To me, these seem to be anxiety attacks, although the word anxiety is perhaps not quite appropriate for his experience, because anxiety describes a feeling, while Alex's experiences are primarily of physical symptoms, a kind of psychosomatic crisis or psychosomatic breakdown. The symptoms seem to stand on their own, 
as if unconnected to his life. I, too, find it difficult to make heads or tails of them. The situation of moving in with his girlfriend, which he only mentioned casually, crosses my mind as a potentially relevant threshold situation. He has never been this close to a partner before. It is his very first long-term relationship. Had Alex been living at home before, up until his mid-thirties? Is this about leaving the childhood home? I have the idea something is with the family, but it is something that is very hard to talk about. I also had to bear in mind that patients with somatic symptom disorders or pronounced hypochondria sometimes appear isolated, as if reduced entirely to their symptoms, lacking in emotional contact, not only with themselves and their own experiences, but also with others. This is not the case with Alex. In our interactions, he appears to me anxious, clinging, in search of help, even almost a bit demanding, yet as if out of desperation. And still, my interactions with him are already quite limited to his symptoms. It is I who is supposed to relieve the symptoms at once, calm him down, explain to him what the problem is, certainly also because of the pressure of his ailments. Something is being conveyed to me very forcefully, though by quite unpleasant means. I feel myself entangled with him in something, confused, saying things I don't want to say, or, conversely, not saying things I actually want to say. My repeated emphasis, we don't know yet, we need time to understand it, all seem to me like a compromise solution, like an attempt first to establish some space for thought, while something very urgent and threatening is palpable at the same time. Despite these frustrations, I have the feeling that productive work is possible between us. I like Alex, and I feel hopeful that I can help him, even if I do not actually know yet how. The first phase of therapy, words to fit a feeling. In the preliminary sessions that followed, a lot of attention was paid to Alex's symptoms. Alex is really very anxious. All kinds of physical symptoms worry him, make him think of cancer, of heart disease, and above all, this is what concerns him the most, of possible brain disease. In addition to the physical symptoms, I learn after some questioning that there are also some genuine depressive symptoms. Alex often feels glum, 
especially in the morning, at times has little motivation, withdrawing on his own. And with great shame, he also talks about occasional alcoholic episodes, not without first adding, my girlfriend says I should talk about this here. He says he is actually a very peace-loving person who couldn't harm anyone. In fact, Alex comes across as rather compliant, as someone whose own needs take a back seat. But when he has been drinking, Alex says, I go crazy. He can then become aggressive, end up in altercations. In the past, in particular, he got into fights once in a while. But it's not really his way at all. Once he tried to kick in a cigarette machine when it swallowed his money. Alex has been smoking since his youth. These episodes trouble him deeply. He has the feeling that something is wrong with him. This is just not normal. I say, something in you breaks through and that scares you. Alex replies, then I can't remember. The next morning when I'm sober again, it's all gone. But since he's been doing so bad, he hasn't had any alcohol at all for fear that it will get worse. The word normal keeps coming up, appears to be very important in some way. The worst thing seems to be not being considered normal, which is why simply going to a therapist is already extremely worrisome to him. But what this normal means to Alex is still not clear to me at this point. He also tells me some about his history. His family does in fact come from Russia, as ethnic Germans. They moved to Germany in the early 90s, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Alex himself was born in the Soviet Union. His real name is Alexei, which he tells me as if it were some curious fact having little to do with him. He has, however, no memory of his childhood in the USSR, though it was the first decade of his life and even at home, they don't talk about it. Since the family has been living in Germany, they have given up the Russian language entirely, and ever since, his parents only call him Alex or Alexander. Only swearing, that works better in Russian, Alex jokes. Only his grandfather talks about his time in Russia now and then. The family still has relatives there, are even still in contact, but Alex has not been there since he was a child. But someday he plans to visit them. Alex lived with his parents for a very long time, until his mid-thirties, in a separate apartment within his parents' house. He describes his relationship, especially with his mother, as very close, though there are also frequent conflicts. The older brother has said, You're a parasite. Stop living off your parents' backs. Most likely, Alex says, he was jealous I didn't have to pay rent. He had wanted a relationship for a long time, and now and then also had something with women, but anything long-term was somehow not possible. When, at 33, he finally started his first committed relationship, his parents found it difficult to let him go. Especially a year ago, when it came to the question of moving out. Your girlfriend can move in here. With you, it's much cheaper. We can also remodel a room. But his girlfriend didn't want that. Alex says, 
She pulled me out of the house. There was nothing my parents could do. She had already experienced that in a previous relationship. She said to me, it's between parents or girlfriend. I say, there might be something to that. Alex agrees. He says that his partner was a stroke of luck. They met online. She is a physical therapist in a rehab clinic, is quite self-confident, knows what she wants. However, I still can't quite visualize their relationship, especially not in any intimate or sexual way. It is difficult to connect the confident girlfriend with the impression Alex gives off as rather shy and insecure. Perhaps she is kind of the caretaker in the relationship. Does she want to separate him from his parents, or just have him all to herself? Overall, though, I have the feeling that it's a very important, helpful bond for Alex, which for the time being has removed him somewhat from his parents' sphere of influence, even though the couple live just a few blocks away from his parents. My question as to how their life is shaped is quickly perceived by Alex as intrusive, answering with a masculine, nonchalant gesture, it's fine. In contrast to this manly, subdued attitude, right from the very start of therapy, Alex has clung uneasily to each session. The conversation unburdens him somewhat, he says. But as the week goes on, it is clear that he grows increasingly tense once more. What we work on in one session, he seems to have completely lost by the next week flushed away by a torrent of anxiety and bodily symptoms. The states are unpredictable, can attack him suddenly. Actually, he is doing quite good, but then suddenly something starts to move inside him. Something strikes as if, according to Alex, a bomb was thrown into a house. And then suddenly the catastrophe has arrived. At the end of this preliminary period, I recommend long-term therapy to Alex in the form of analytic psychotherapy. We initially agree on meeting two times a week in one-hour sessions, and eventually, over the course of the therapy, adding a third meeting. Alex's government health insurance pays for up to 300 sessions. The conversations will not take place lying on the couch, but rather sitting across from one another. On the one hand, I have the feeling that Alex needs a higher frequency of appointments in order to stabilize himself, but also in order to get more in touch with his own inner world, while at the same time, I feel it should be a setting that provides him with structure by maintaining eye contact with a therapist, a so-called real contact, so as not to overwhelm him with his inner states or by other fears and feelings. In Alex's words, I don't do that, nothing against you, but I'm not going to lay down in front of a man. The treatment operates under the diagnosis of a panic disorder and a recurrent depressive disorder. I consider the diagnosis of a somatoform disorder, but ultimately decide against it. To me, the decisive factor appears to be the seizure-like nature of the psychosomatic crises, the blows that strike out of nowhere. For a long period of the therapy, this also remains the big question. What is it that keeps hitting like a bomb, again and again, ripping him out of a sense of normality 
and into an inner inferno. Even on the surface, there are conflicts playing a role. Conflicts about separating from his parents' home, about closeness and intimacy with his girlfriend, perhaps also conflicts about his male identity. I won't lay down in front of a man. There is something intangible that still seems to be doing its work, which in the therapy still needs to be better understood. In addition to the aspect of fear, the psychosomatic dimensions of his complaints also seem important to me. On the psychostructural level, Alex's complaints could also be understood as deficits in mentalization, i.e., the difficulty of mentally representing inner states of tension. That means to transform them into discernible feelings. In this case, fear would then be experienced by him as predominantly physical, as undigested and undifferentiated excitements or trepidation, chaos of the nerves, states, as something wrong in the head. Feelings are hardly recognized by Alex as meaningful psychological entities that could have something to do with his life, certain situations, and so on, and instead as troublemakers, alien, something that one has to get under control. I see the creation of inner connections, in this sense, the building of inner psychic space, as the central task of our therapeutic work, along with a meaningful connection between his experience and his history. Meeting twice a week immediately has a noticeable effect. Alex becomes somewhat calmer. He trudges on from hour to hour, while the prospect that the next session is not too far away offers him some relief. Weekends and holiday breaks are difficult, however, and he can quickly plunge into crises, especially early on in therapy, to such a degree that during the first holiday break over Christmas, he went to an on-call doctor. I most certainly see in the on-call doctor a transference figure that has something to do with me. A doctor who is ready, available, if the break between the sessions is too long. However, at the same time, what also appears to me important in this regard is that the doctor is always the source of anxiety, the person who decides over life and death, normal and abnormal, 
who can redeem or bring the fatal diagnosis or send Alex to the psychiatric ward, something that may be extremely threatening to Alex. Again and again, I find myself in bizarre extremes when reflecting on the treatment. My associations are particularly violent. Often during the session, I also have the feeling that I have to be very careful with the choice of my words, so that what I say does not inadvertently carry with it some murderous connotation. As in when I say, for example, to lose your head, to be brutally honest, to take a stab in the dark, to bite the bullet, and so on. Alex uses such words frequently, ostensibly, out of linguistic clumsiness. I have the sense that there is something else involved. As if under the surface there is something violent inscribed into his speech. We go in search of words to describe what he feels. Where in the body? How does it feel? How would you describe it in your own words? What else happens? What thoughts accompany it? We work out that the thought, it is a dangerous disease, leads to even more tension, which in turn creates even more dizziness and pressure in his head. In a sense, this pressure is a primal link holding together feeling, fear, and body. In almost every session, he speaks about which symptoms are bothering and worrying him the most at that moment. For example, at the beginning of one session, he mentions rather casually a bodily symptom, a strange tugging sensation in the head, or a flickering in front of the eyes. At the same time, he tries to reassure himself with a somewhat forced coolness, also perhaps out of shame. I think it's normal. It's nothing. I say, still I have the feeling that it worries you. At which point, all his fears take over. He anxiously clings to me, seeking my judgment. Do I think it's dangerous? Where do I think it's coming from? As if the unconscious message was, tell me everything is okay, calm me down. I think, a little like a crying infant that needs its mother to calm it down. At the same time, however, I have the feeling that I am not quite in possession of the proper means. Over and over, I find myself in the position of having to give him something concrete. What is the cause of the symptoms? Is it physical or psychological? Dangerous or harmless? It's as if I'm his medical doctor, carrying out a physical examination, with the x-ray in my hand as proof, as it were, telling him, everything's okay. But I don't have an x-ray, and I can't carry out a physical examination, nor can I provide absolute certainty. If, nevertheless, I say something concrete about his physical symptoms, to the effect of, I don't believe that these are symptoms for meningitis. The headaches would have to be much stronger, and besides, you would have other symptoms too. Then I feel like a pseudo-doctor, giving reassuring signals that all's clear, promises I can't actually keep. If, on the other hand, I recommend that he visits a specialist for evaluation, I feel as if I'm admitting to being overwhelmed, and more importantly, sending him away, as in, you're lost, get out, I can't help you. I see this relationship dynamic as the manifestation of a profound contact or attachment disorder that is being encountered in the transference and countertransference. With me, 
Alex tries to rid himself of inner tension, fear, and agitation. But the emotional contact, the reciprocity of understanding and being understood that could truly provide reassurance, breaks apart again and again. Instead, concrete measures, concrete subjects, like diagnoses and medical judgments, are what he seeks as comfort. To use an infant metaphor, I have become a mother or father trying to soothe the infant with a pacifier in a bottle, which is not a bad thing. However, it is no replacement for feelings and real emotional regulation. And when that fails to work and I am overwhelmed, I pass the infant on to someone else, medical specialists. But even the pacifier does not really soothe. The tension and fear remains undigested and loose within the body, cannot be decreased. It is Alex himself, however, who is demanding these concrete measures, perhaps not even able to imagine anything else. He does not yet know what that means, to feel, what it means for another person to reassure him through emotional understanding. This is not something that I can explain to him with words and concepts, but rather something that, at best, he can come to experience with time. However, getting there, psychoanalytically speaking, getting to that integrated alpha function, is long and difficult. Nearly the entire first phase of therapy, you could say the first two years, continued almost exclusively to circle around his physical symptoms. Time and again, I address the dynamics of our relationship. Maybe you feel I'm someone who can't give you what you need, or maybe you feel I'm trying to push you away right now when I say, you have to clarify this with a specialist. But it is still almost impossible to address our relationship directly. For Alex immediately feels guilty, as if he is being persecuted. What he hears in my words is that I am dissatisfied with him, as if I were pointing an admonishing finger at a disturbance, at an irritation in our connection, something he feels he is responsible for himself. He apologizes for bringing up the subject. Ruptures in our relationship cannot yet be named at this point in the therapy, as they are still too frightening for Alex, as if something coming from my side would then threaten him. Perhaps as a compromise in this relational dilemma, I repeatedly adopt the position of a kind of benevolent psychology teacher in this first phase of therapy. I tend to explain, somewhat psychoeducationally, the connections between psychological experience, stress, feelings, and physical symptoms. Alex finds relief in this kind of contact. My words seem to calm him, although without really being able to incorporate the ideas or being able to connect them with his own experience. I have the feeling it is not so much about what I say as about being able to convey the impression, I know my stuff, I know the ropes. I can work with what he brings to the sessions. I can deal with his symptoms. At the very least, I can give a name to what moves him. Whereas, there is something nameless about his fear. For a long time, this is the basic form of contact that develops between us. But still, contact is made. In this phase of therapy, dreams, or even figures of speech and metaphors, hardly play any role. Exceptions, such as the bomb in the head, are only very rarely mentioned by Alex. Once, 
He spoke of a dream in which something violent seemed to be going on, describing it only briefly. There was blood or fire. He couldn't remember anything else. However, I also try again and again to establish connections with his everyday life, his relationships, desires, or conflicts. Indeed, these feelings of anxiety and tension must arise from somewhere. At first, this is a laborious process. In my attempts to make connections between his symptoms and the situations in which he might actually be angry, afraid, or sad, I fall into an odd technical jargon, as if I were describing the operating principle of a machine. And it is in this very same way that Alex picks up on my interventions, saying, So because anger arose in me yesterday, that's why my vision became blurry? Sometimes, when I go on talking about feelings, linking them to the hard facts of his physical symptoms, I feel I'm talking psychobabble, tinged with something esoteric. And Alex is rather like a student, eagerly trying to keep up, trying to learn the material. However, rather repeating it as if by heart, without quite believing it, not really relating it to his experience. However, at some points, I do have the feeling that Alex is in fact aware of his feelings. At some moments, we enter into contact that is certainly emotionally resonant and not merely instrumental, in which he still doesn't appear to be closed off, but rather as if in hiding or on the defense. Ultimately, he seems quite interested in the therapeutic work. Yet time and again, something always appears to grow unbearable, and he withdraws his antennas, retreating instead into the world of technical thinking, into machine metaphors, something that is reassuring because it is predictable. Alex also reports of quarrels and conflicts in the family. His parents seem constantly worried about the family's well-being, as Alex describes it, supposedly with quite reasonable reasons, in fact. For example, his mother keeps posting health tips on the family WhatsApp group, and his father posts business tips. But his parents can also be quite intrusive. On one occasion, Alex reported about an argument with his girlfriend, in which she accused him of not having enough alone time with her. His parents had visited the couple the previous afternoon. Alex, they just came in. It was a surprise visit. My girlfriend was still in the shower. Me, a little surprised. Your parents have a key to your apartment? Alex, yes, if there's a problem, like a fire or something, and I'm not home, that way they can get in. Me, but you didn't make plans for Sunday and your parents just came into the apartment? That's exactly how it happened. His parents rang the doorbell, and when no one answered, they just came in. They scolded Alex. Why don't you open the door? We thought you were dead. His parents seemed to be panicking themselves. The thought that Alex could be dead just like that seemed absurd to me. At the same time, I thought, this is precisely what he is afraid of after all. From one moment to the next, the catastrophe is all of a sudden there. Over the course of the conversation, it turned out that such surprise visits happen quite often. This angers his girlfriend. She says, take away their keys. But Alex has the feeling that this isn't possible. It appears that his parents have an unspoken right to gain access to the apartment. And what if there really is a fire? Even so, when Alex came to the next session, 
he told me about the discussion he had had with his girlfriend. She thinks it's good that he's finally realizing everything isn't normal with his family. But what exactly is not normal? Apart from a few instances, there is little room to talk about such topics. His symptoms and states are usually in the foreground. More than a year of therapeutic work passes in this way. And already, the second year has begun. On the one hand, Alex is doing better. The strain from the acute symptoms has subsided. At the same time, I sometimes have the feeling that our work is somewhat aimless. I don't quite understand. What is exactly wrong with him? Why does he feel the way he does? The details he has told from his life do give hints, but don't really provide a conclusive picture. And even more important, nothing of it is really turning out to be significant for therapeutic work, nothing that is really conducive to the process of understanding. Alex needs the therapy. We keep diffusing points of crises, but the source of the crises continue to be opaque. And yet, the therapy is only now at the point where it is possible to sense that something is even missing at all. That is, the acute pressure of the crisis has eased off enough that some space has emerged, even if at first it is an empty space yearning to be filled with something. I ask Alex how he feels about the therapy. He sees progress and is glad that we are working together. To my surprise, he expresses the wish to better understand what is wrong with him and why these states keep coming up. The wish to understand, which is a different emphasis than the wish to relieve the symptoms. I do not yet foresee what massive states I will be confronted with when the history of his family takes hold of therapeutic space. I suggest, after the holidays, it is summer 2018, to add a third hour, and Alex gladly agrees. But we will hear more about that and how the therapy continues in the coming week.